Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. This is the OKS Trapper, part of the OKS Podcast Network, with host Zach Hansen, author of Turning Feral. Hear stories, lessons, and fireside chats through a journey of hunting, trapping, and wilderness living in the modern age. And welcome to another episode of the OKS Trapper Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by a company that I am very passionate about, Mountain Tough Fitness. If you are thinking about getting in better shape to go further and longer on your trap line, then their fitness app is for you. They tailor to all levels of fitness and offer on-screen coaching with little to no equipment needed. If you head over to mountaintough.com, M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H.com, and use the promo code OKS30, you will get a 30-day free trial. I've been following their program for several years now and can attest to it being a miserably good time. Now, Today, I am very pumped to have an acquaintance of mine on the podcast. He grew up in a small town in Washington State and has evolved into the one of the world's best elk callers and built a successful business around it. He's the host of Cutting the Distance podcast, a part of the Meat Eater crew, and has a background in trapping. Jason Phelps, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'd go real light on like a background in trapping. We just kind of got, I was so pumped about it, maybe even more pumped to do it than, than hunting. And then uh, I live in a state where, like, just as I was getting going, just starting to catch bobcat, beaver, otter, just kind of got turned down. But I love everything about it. Still get to help with a little bit of nuisance trapping around here and whatnot. But um, loved it and was like a student of the game. I can remember just, like, read the internet forums, you know, trapperman.com, everything. Like, how do I how do I learn how to do this and, and be good at it? Since yeah. I didn't really have much of a mentor. A little bit my uncle on the water side, but... Um, like the, the dry ground trapping for Bobcat and was, was kind of all self-taught. That's awesome. And you actually nailed the first question that I had, which was, you know, growing up in Washington had to be wild because, you know, I don't want to give away your age, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, when we had chatted a little bit before, I know you were doing some of that trapping. You were really excited about it. Um, but before we talk about what's happened in Washington, maybe, can you like recount what your earliest memory of trapping is? Yeah, I mean, and I'm going to say like we went out into the woods, me and a couple of buddies. It was like early high school. So I'd say like I was maybe freshman, sophomore, and a couple of my buddies were more in junior high. And we had, you know, grandpas and uncles had passed down like old, old traps. So we were just, we just had none of our own. We were running on like old duke conibears bears and like old long springs that like people had welded teeth on you know not to yeah. nowadays i would never do that knowing what i know but you know we were just using what we had and i can remember um my wife now girlfriend at the time um, her family had some property and i can remember like they had like a uh, a creek that ran through it with a lot of muskrat so we were setting like 110s you were setting beaver we were setting you know just everything and i can remember you know we would go up there on the four-wheeler kind of run our little trap line um, on her property and we caught everything up there we caught beaver otter muskrat um we caught bobcat and like a really unconventional like bank set like a cubby bank set with a 220 conibear, bear um you know in, in a bank with some beaver parts in in the corner um 
you know, so that was, that was kind of our start. And I can remember as we were getting into it at that same time, my mother-in-law now would like drive us down an hour away. So we were trying to all get our trappers education, um, you know, at that time so that we could all you know become trappers and, and go do it. And, um, so yeah, that was kind of my, my first exposure. And then as I wanted to learn more, um, kind of, kind of started running with my uncle on his longer, like water trap line for beaver and otter and really kind of learn the ins and the outs of, of. I would say at that time they were almost running like a pre-commercial or a commercial trap line, you know, where they were each putting up, you know, 300 to 400 beaver a year, Oh wow! you know, a hundred plus otter a year and like learned from him and then uh, learned really quickly that he could skin a lot faster. Like me messing with a beaver wasn't <laughs> worth it. And so like we, we came up with like a drop box system where I would just get $5 for every beaver I dropped off and I didn't have to touch them. So yeah, that's that awesome. Was, that was, that was my exposure. And then over the next three or four years, we got to trap a little bit and then it all got yanked from us here as far as body gripping traps. And that's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, I empathize wholly on the beaver thing. Sadly, I don't have a drop box where I can go and drop them off and uh, <laughs> yeah, still get a little cash and then not have to deal with yeah. uh, skinning them. But you know, how long did it take for whether it was your uncle or whoever your mentor was that you ended up dropping off at to be like, okay, Jason, like, you're pretty good at trapping, but good Lord, you suck in the skinning shed. Like how many beaver did it take for you to kind of be like, yeah, you know, this is not worth the squeeze. Well, I, I probably barely got out of the single digits. Like I was 10 <laughs> to 12 in like, this is just like, cause I would go watch him and, and my uncle still probably one of the best. He had a system where he had a, a two by four, like screwed into a piece of plywood. And then he would have Dacron fishing line tied to triple hooks. And he would get him split up the belly and he would use those triple hooks to basically pull tension. Hmm. And so he clean skinned. And this is no exaggeration from the time his knife touched a beaver, it would be clean skinned and on a board within 15 minutes and done. So hold on. I'm trying to visually imagine this. So beaver laying belly up on a table, split up the middle, like you're going to normally just do a, yep. a round and then hooks to kind of almost pull and get the tension on either side yep so just one side so like let's say it's the off side he'd have his hooks in it and he's pulling clean in the 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 close side and then he'd basically just peel around you know the beat where i was sitting like trying to get around the caster it was a slow process mm -hmm. you know and he just flew through it and, and like i say not only skinned but clean skinned and then on a board to side because he had did so many he just knew this is this size i need to stretch it to this so there's no restretching there was no just very quick and i'm like shoot for the time that it takes me versus the time i can see you do it like i'm just going to take my you know five seven eight dollars whatever it might be based on the size and just like you can have all of these and it it was really no workload for him you know on a on an average day we'd bring maybe three or four beaver in and so i mean we weren't like overloading him compared to his trap line but um, we realized real quick that that was the best way to to do it was not to mess with them. Yeah. And it sounds like you and, you know, your, your friends were learning to trap in the same way that you know, I did. And a lot of other folks listening to this podcast are, which is kind of trial by error. Like I, you didn't have YouTube back then you had some nope. mentors, some guides. So you know, what was the hardest part? If you can remember of being consistent and it sounds like you got to a point over those years before it was all yanked away of being consistent, but was it trial and error? Was it a certain cubby set or was it just doing it all? It was just a lot of, we just did everything. We threw, there was, there was no, 
there was a little bit of guidance on the water side. Like I say, my uncle showed me, like, if you want to target otters at that time were high, you know, like you need to be on your main streams. You need to find for these little crossover ponds, you know, for them to get out of the water. They need the fish, blah, blah, blah. And so we, we, we learned on the water side, but as far as like Bobcat musk, it was really just throw everything at them. Um, you know, just being in the woods all the time, like, Oh, here's a Bobcat toilet. Like we'll set a foothold and then we'll set a cubby. If he comes down the road, like we'll try this. And then like, all right, we, we caught him in the cubby. And then the next time it's like, all right, we got a skiff of snow. Let's go spend the weekend driving, just looking for tracks, figure out where the, and then that's really like on the Bobcat side, really kind of like was a light bulb that went off. Hey, we got to, we got to scout. We got to know what we're, you know, in our area where these Bobcats are traveling, um, you know, these dead end spurs that suck for deer hunting or like our, our money spots for for bobcats and you would figure out where they were traveling and almost any time we would go up and do some pre-scouting before we did all of our sets um our, our catch percentage was was way better than than you know kind of um uneducated uh blind sets and and so i would say we really learned by a lot of trial and error there were there were a lot of um you know months i'm not saying weeks at a time months at a time where one 110 just wouldn't get hit or uh you know and and uh, so you're like, well, this is kind of a waste of time. We did, you know, learning to beaver trap. We set a lot of like side slides into, mm. and like, this is, we learned very quickly, like, this is a waste of our time. Like the bottom of the, the, the dam slide set is 99% more producing than, than, you know, a side set. And so we just, we just learned over time kind of on our own, a little bit of guidance, but um, I would say, you know, the majority of it was just trial and error. Like, Hey, these trap sit for a long time don't get touched let's let's focus more on what's working yeah and just trying to understand and paint a picture i think most listeners will know you from kind of your big game hunting your your call manufacturing but this time in your life like young teenager getting into trapping did this parallel with your real start into big game hunting too or was it did it precede it it was so i've got a little bit of an compulsive like personality and in this it all took over right trapping i could trap when i wasn't hunting hunting season would roll around we would stop trapping um it kind of all just tied in it was it was all there at the same time um like i said i think if if uh trapping i was super passionate about it and and if it would have been able to be legal um may have may have uh you know been more important to me than than hunting just because my family had had such a long tradition uh, you know, I had always remember my uncles, like that was their play money, right? If they wanted anything nice, if they wanted to buy a new truck, if they wanted to go on vacation. It, and so like in my head, I'm like, Hey, not only is this awesome, I love to do it, but there's a potential, you know, maybe, maybe at a young age, like that entrepreneurial spark was already there that, Hey, I can do this. I love to do it and make a little bit of extra money as well. If you think back on it though, like the things you learned and obviously you've become a very successful big game hunter are there any takeaways if you had to pick one from your time trapping, knowing how much passion you did have for it, despite how short lived it was that translated very well that you think has made you a better hunter today? Yeah. And, and I would say trapping and it may just be a, a parallel, but like I have a very, you know, for those that don't know, I've got a, a professional engineering, um, you know, I'm a professional engineer. My brain is very much geared to an engineer or, I'm, I hope your listener base doesn't take this the wrong way. Like a very, very like male driven, methodical, like there's a problem, there's clues or there's solutions and I need to go fix the problem. So like, I've always applied this to trapping or hunting. Like 
there are obviously beaver there are obviously bobcat on on the on the landscape what are the signs they're giving us what can we use against them like very methodically like pick it apart and so i would say that trapping may be translated but it's reading reading sign reading areas um and this isn't meant to discredit people that maybe aren't good at beaver trapping but i realized very quickly like beaver trapping was somewhat easy it was it was easier and maybe that's why i gravitated more towards the bobcat coyote trapping um i i didn't find as much success i'm like well those beaver trapping's easy i just i go out find an active dam i set you know a dive stick at the bottom set my 330 up and and i usually have one you know the very first night um you know and and so i would say it was just that like learning to read an area learning to read the situation um from water trapping over to to the to our land trapping it's just you know and that's where like i would say the 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 skiff of snow scouting was good for us you know we're, we're in an area we don't get a lot of snow so you get that first little skiff you make sure to go drive like a, a couple big loops figure out where tracks are at examine them like hey why did they go up to this you know fir tree at the end of a dead end spur like well that's where i'm going to set my trap is i'm going to you know carve out a 90 degree angle against that tree he's obviously going to come back to it i'm going to set my set there and so um learning to just read sign learning to be a more educated trapper and not just like like i said the 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 the, the learning from having traps just sit and never get hit and not wanting a trap to be that you know that worthless i guess or in that worthless of a spot was what drove me like i wanted all of my traps producing i wanted all of my sets to be high percentage sets um and so that's really what drove me it was like to be better and and for for those that don't know me as well like very um competitive like all the way through sports um you know i played all three sports i still coach all three like it's just deeply ingrained that i wanted to be as good at trapping I wanted to be as good as as it was out there you know it, it you know my percentage of traps was was being hit all the time and i was able to produce you know animals every every time out yeah i think there's something to be said for that that tenacity and plus all the pe's i know are like you very methodical very you know you know, want to figure out a solution to the problem and i think another element of that and you mentioned it was just time out in the field you know if you're a weekend deer elk hunter, you might go out scouting, maybe consider picking up trapping because it does force you to be out in the woods, yep. you know, way more often. Cause I mean, depending on your state regulations might say you need to check your traps every 24 hours, 72 hours. And you know, if you're getting to a set that's just not being touched, you're going to get so frustrated that you want to adjust and figure out yep. and play around with it. Yeah. And I, you know, to go back, the other thing that really, kind of sparked as i was building a lot of my own traps and and i don't i don't even remember if snares were legal back then but you know i would go out in the shop and you know go to the hardware store ace hardware and you know i can remember my mom coming home like why are you boiling washers and baking soda you know and why are you boiling all this cable um and you know i would wind up my cable boil it baking soda get everything off of it and then i'd go out to the shop and bend my washers drill my holes mm -hmm. you know make my snares and um, you know, I was just very involved, I, you know, as I finally saved up a little bit of money or I'd ask for Christmas, like, Hey, I want some Belial three thirties. You know, I want six of them, you know, and, and then I would get my, you know, I would order my, Hey, hey we're finally going to have some four coiled coil springs for Bobcat, you know? And I just, I love the whole process. Like, Hey, we got to speed dip our, 
our beaver traps or hey on our on our footholds we're just going to boil them and get everything off or boil them in fur boughs and and uh i just i love the whole process learning you know i was a uh, like i say in high school so i didn't have all kinds of money so i was making do on hand-me-down traps that um you know my uncle didn't want and then some stuff that we could afford and i just i loved everything you know it was all it was all about the the gimmicks oh i got crush proof swivels on my you know on this or that now where before it was like literally just tying a wire off and hoping to god he didn't like spin your wire and get loose um you know and so it was it was just a process growing from a few hand-me-downs up to having like a pretty legit you know 24 land traps you know probably 30 to 40 you know water sets and uh and then i just i love the process of getting out of uh football practice or basketball practice and like going to check in my trap line at night like it just it it brought me to a place of, of everything you read and and it felt like it was a legit thing that we were doing even though we were pretty podunk you know for for back in the day uh, in our little mini trap line yeah I, I empathize with that you know i i didn't grow up in a hunting or trapping family i'm i'm more on the adult onset side but you know trapping when you have some steel slung over your shoulder, like you do feel like you're in a mountain man book. It's impossible yeah. to not get reconnected with that on a, a more visceral degree than maybe even walking around the woods with a bow, in my opinion, yeah. um, which is pretty special. So you do this through high school, you're getting pretty good at it. And then the rug is ripped out from under you. What yeah. happened? I mean, we can, this would be a real deep dive, right? And this is some of the reasons why we're it's hunting or trapping regulation. Like you don't ever want it to go to the ballot, especially when you live in a state like mine, you want it just to be handled by the fish and wildlife commissions. Um, this one, unfortunately, and I don't remember the initiative, it made it onto the ballot here in Washington. And uh, I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but it was basically body gripping traps. So we could still trap with live traps, uh, but that was really going to leave us to that. And um it was kind of, I mean, I don't remember the, the, the numbers that passed, but we, all of us that were trapping kind of new in this state, um, you know, the commercials that came out and were aired at that time, like it did us no favors. Um, and, and real quick, you know, I, I'm, I'm in Idaho. We have a strong trapping culture, but when you're saying commercials, like were these actual ads run by anti-hunting, anti-trapping yep. organizations on like regular cable yep. TV? Yeah, I mean, back then, I don't even know what they are anymore. I don't watch a whole lot of like local TV, you know, Como News 4, you know, mm -hmm. Fox Channel 13, these these anti-trapping um, pushes or, you know, people running these agendas, they paid for full 30-second, one-minute-long commercials of animals, you know, caught in traps. And, and this is where like I struggled with it. Like, I agree, like I don't, like watching a coyote stuck in a foothold like staring at you i don't like i don't want to see those images like that that is not the glorious part of trapping for me it's it's a necessary part but i don't enjoy that and and you couldn't you couldn't tell your side of the story like i want and, and it's hard and this is where like a lot of people struggle like i want that animal to be as comfortable as possible even though i know i'm going to kill it at the end of this process but in the meantime like I, I wish no will ill so anyways back to the thing like very tough for even me to handle commercials right and so they did a good job the antis did a very good job getting their point across into the voting public and um i don't remember the numbers but very very lopsided vote and oh, wow. um within like one fell swoop one try 
um, all body gripping traps. Now, I don't want to laugh because it's not funny, but the way that the law was wrote, um, they quickly came back and amended some of it because now all of a sudden these people in Seattle could no longer body grip trap moles. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we we uh, we love animals so much, except for those moles that make our yard, you know, not as attractive. So we mm-hmm. need we need body gripping traps back for um, you know moles and and some other things. Um, so aside from nuisance trapping, um, all of our body gripping traps were now illegal to be set, you know, out in the woods on the ground. We were left with basically cage traps, and the effectiveness. I mean, anybody that knows get. I mean, you can. Cats, our bobcat trapping probably would have been the best thing we had going, but um, you know, water trapping it's just it's just not as productive when you got to try to get beaver, otter, whatever into a live trap. And then, like I said, I, I like conibears because I don't have to. I feel like yeah, I'm responsible for the death, but I don't have to do any like mm-hmm. end of life. Work. I don't have to do any end of life stuff, you know. There, and I liked it. Um, you know, with very rarity, you get a fast swimming otter, you may have to like dispatch, but for the most part, you go up to your conibear, things are dead when you get there. Um, I, I didn't want to deal with body, or, you know, uh, I, I wanted to deal with that and not deal with live traps and having to dispatch everything that we caught. Um, so yeah, we, it's, we, an, it's an interesting conundrum there too, where you get that kind of ballot box science where you know yesterday i had the chance and this will be out on a a podcast that comes out after this one where i spoke with um the program manager for afwa which is the association of fish and wildlife agencies and i was actually doing some live trapping research for them on pine martin lately and they've done tons of studies on the efficacy of footholds conibears you know live trapping and the interesting fact is often the footholds or the conibears are way more ethical in the taking of an animal than a live trap because you get an animal in a live trap they might be rattling around trying to get out for potentially hours on end so it's always surprising when people make decisions maybe not based in fact yeah yeah and like i say we walked up to a lot of bobcats in footholds most of them appeared to be comfortable um they didn't like you getting real close to to them you know they get they get a lot but i mean that was more of their protective but they i never felt like those things, you know, we, we did catch a couple in, in live traps. Like those things look more nervous, more anxious, just like ready to crawl out of their skin than any of them that we just have in a foothold. There's like, oh, I'm kind of stuck by this tree for a little bit, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I agree. Like they seem way more, way more adjusted, more calm to being in a foothold than, than a live trap. So what does it look like? You mentioned that you still do some nuisance trapping, like in Washington state. Does that mean, you know, unless you have a mole problem that you have to have another type of license to do like yep. private land yeah and, and and i would say i i don't i do it more just to help my uncle um who has his nuisance um license mm-hmm. uh, i don't know i think it's on a rotation list or on like an on-call list and i don't know exactly how it happens um but yeah basically it's got to be like justified it's got to be approved it's got to go through a process in order for the nuisance to you know it's got to be flooding personal property or water you know or property that's not considered wetlands and some of that but to my knowledge there is no nuisance aside from water um and really you i don't even know what the bycatch laws are you know otter can be but it's really to target the beaver and then um i know he also sometimes my uncle will just remove the dams 
and and not even deal with with catching the, the critters but sometimes he'll trap first or move second just to, to make sure it doesn't you know reestablish very quickly well i hate to be the bearer of bad news but like up where i live in atlanta idaho i've had the honor of having a, a nuisance license with idaho fishing game to remove beaver because we have 68 miles of dirt road that's riverfront and there's been times where beaver have flooded that road, causing literally millions of dollars of damage. And we took that approach before I got, you know, my nuisance license in order to go just knock the dam down. But it is amazing how quickly they'll just rebuild, you know, 30 feet further up, 30 feet further down. And it's just this never ending battle. Yeah. Unless you actually kind of take care of the problem. Yeah. That's why usually he'll throw traps out for a couple of weeks and then remove the dam. And then, you know, sometimes they'll go up or down the stream and get off of that you know you're just passing the problem on to somebody else though if they do go up or down um but yeah that it's nuisance is really kind of you know few and far between i don't have any of my own traps anymore you know it's kind of sold it all um i still i'm still a student of the game though i i you know every once in a while if i'm bored i'm like i'm gonna get on trapperman.com and like just mm -hmm. i just i loved everything about it and um yeah i i still i miss it i there are times where i question if I did like it so much and I like big game hunting so much, why am I still here? Um, and, and I could, you know, talking to, to Steve and, you know, guys from Wyoming, Idaho that still do it. I'm like, dang, I really wish I could, you know, I would love to go challenge myself, you know, on wolves and, and things that are supposed to be way more difficult to trap. Like I would love to, to go target, you know, some, some other things that, that would challenge me. And, and like I say, I love being outside, but yeah. Well you're, well, you're welcome in Atlanta, Idaho. We got five <laughs> active packs running around and, you know, we can put steel on the ground whenever you want. All right. I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to think about that. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I did like it so much and, and big game just kind of took over, but, um, I, I, I've got an itch to get back at it. So maybe, uh, here later you know, in life. You know, what's interesting too, is I like to play in the hypotheticals. I, I'm a little bit of a dreamer it's an interesting thought giving your engineering background, what you've been able to do in you know, the big game world from an engineering perspective with your game calls. And we'll talk a little bit about that for some of the predator calls too. But, you know, in my fantasy world, I, what, what would a Jason Phelps foothold look like? What kind of engineering, if you put <laughs> all of your, uh, you know, faculties toward that over the last 20 years instead of big game calls you know what we might be benefiting as a trapping community right now yeah you might be giving me too much credit but i that's just how my mind works right right you look at like oh i see how a long spring work you know a long spring works and then you're like i see how coil springs work and why you add you know and then you know like dogless trap like all these ideas like is there any and i'd have to probably pour some more coals to it but like is there any is there a better mouse trap that we can build like you know and uh I, I always, I was tinkering though. Like, you know, we would, you know, we would just everything like, you know, night latch and, you know, not only so you could set it at night when you're running your trap line, but like have a quicker, more crisp trigger. And, you know, um, we would miss, we would miss a, a coyote. Like, well, was it because my pan dropped, you know, like, so all this stuff would enter my head. Like, did he feel the pan start to move and pulled out or, um, you know, so I, who knows what my, my traps would look like, but it always, um, it always just interested me, you know, all, a lot of my traps were like Duke hand me downs. Now you could do a lot of damage, but I'm like, safety springs suck. Like yeah. I, I had trapped myself multiple times in a Connor bear, like, Hey buddy, um, want to, un you want to get me out of this trap? Like my yeah. thumbs pinched and my forefinger, you know? And, and so I'm like, Oh, well the, the Belial's have like a way better safety system. And then 
nowadays i was i was actually reading a post the other day like there's there's like additional safety springs on like the top and like the trigger side of the trap i'm like i never had those yeah like i just when i got towards the end when i was finally strong enough to like set my trap in the water and not have to use like trap setters or like use my feet on the side of a bank like i could remember the most you know being so nervous like can i hold the bottom of this trap why i hold my trigger and like you know let go real quick and is this trap gonna stay well you know and so like all that would come in like i guess some of my own concerns would even come into my design like really good safety springs like external safeties that aren't even attached to the trap but like make my make you know my i'm like that thing would have been a lifesaver especially as i was going through that stage of like learning how to set a trap why you know in waist deep water without getting you know myself caught or snapped or worried that i was going to get snapped um yeah I, I don't know it'd be interesting you know like i would i was a guy that tinkered with everything like you know messed with my triggers messed with my you know just everything that i learned because i wanted my traps to be the best you know and um, i have a feeling my engineering would would play into some sort of trap design if i was ever to to, to jump back in well, you might be getting a, a a box full of wolf traps from me and being like, "Hey, you know, I was thinking about X, Y, Z. What would you do here?" So yeah. if, if you find those in the mail, you'll know who they're from. What are you? What's everybody using for wolf traps? Like we there towards the end for for big cats, we were throwing some like MB seven fifties out, but I don't even remember like what what. I don't know if you guys happen to use bigger ones for wolves or if that's that's that, a trap that's, of choice. That's still kind of the trap of choice. I'm using mostly MB 750s. There's a guy, I'm not going to remember his first name, but Harris, he has Harris traps, another form of dogless with a pretty wide pan, um, which has been working well for me personally. But those are the two that I'm running for Wolf. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot. I, I figure like the, the trap world's probably like a slowly evolving industry. You just, what we ran, I guess, shoot, almost 20 plus years ago is still what's out there today. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you're right. There's not a lot of innovation in that space. There are some things on trap releasing for non-target catches. You know, um, up until very recently, you if you catch, a, say, a mountain lion in a wolf trap, you're taking your catch pole, putting it around its neck, putting the catch pole between your hip and the ground and having you or your buddy go and take that 750 off that cat's foot. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to have big brass ones for that. Yeah. And, but... A gentleman, and again, I think his name is Reed, just came up with a very simple lever where you can put it over any foothold from like, you know, um, a 550 all the way up to a 750 and just pull a lever at a pretty good distance that just opens the trap. So you okay. can, you know, keep distance between you and the animal. And, you know, that, that's about the extent of innovation as far yeah. as I'm aware recently. So yeah. I don't know how long those, those like I say, the, the Conabare, like top, I don't even know what you'd call them. It looked like just like an external safety that was on the trigger side yep. of the trap. Like that thing, I don't know how that's been long around for a long time, but that thing, I would have loved that. Um, Cause that was like my point of, of uh, contention with like, you know, water trapping was I didn't like, I could get them set, but I didn't want that thing to go off once I, un, you know, you know, or these little Duke hooks that barely get around the, 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 the spring, spring. going to actually hold this time. Or am I going to snap myself again? Yeah, pain is a great teacher, though, and I think that's one of the things, whether it's trapping or hunting, especially for people who are getting into it later in life, maybe, you know, there's real consequences, and you find out the hard way once or twice, and you might become a little bit more innovative, even if you're not an engineer by trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come up with better ways to do it. Yeah. Um, when you were trapping, when was the reintroduction of wolves in 
Washington State? Um, it was about that time, I think. Uh, you know, so we'd have been trapping 96, 97, 98, like in that time frame. And I believe Wolves have are. It was about, I mean, the same time Idaho kind of got them. We were kind of getting an influx from Canada and then that push from, uh, I, I think we had them. Now, still to this day, I don't know how many of your listeners from Western Washington, and I'm not trying to make a make an argument. I, some people are going to say they're already here, but like there's no documented packs in Western Washington where we were trapping. So mm-hmm. um, we were kind of away from the wolves on, on our side. But yeah, they, they were they were on their on their way back at that time. Okay. Yeah, so... To your knowledge, has there been any conversations in Washington State about like the need for trapping for some of that? I mean, I think the answer is probably no, just based on the demographic in Washington State. But you know, like at least in Idaho, you know, we have open hunting pretty much. You can go to the grocery store and buy a tag. But if you look at the number of wolves taken, it's probably 80-20 on you know, most of them are taken by trappers just yeah. because of the time out there and the need. Um, versus hunting, which is more opportunistic. I mean, do you know of anything in watching it, or, or do you see, foresee a future where that might actually come back up as a as a need? I mean, we can't we can't even hunt wolves here, right? Um, part of our our reestablishment or a wolf plan, there has to be two documented packs, breeding packs on the west side. Mm. Um, and I honestly believe if we ever, even if we ever got there, the it's a moving target, right? We're I don't think in this state we're ever going to be able to hunt or trap wolves. Um, right now, our fish and wildlife office, if there's any lethal, you know, it's done by, uh, you know, government trappers or hunters or somebody within the, the agency. Um, unfortunately, I don't think you're going to ever see the general public like out there actively managing our wolf. I'll say issue or population, whatever one you want to pick. But um, I think we're going to be on the sidelines on this one for a while. Yeah, I mean, I would assume that Colorado will be on the same path just a few years behind Washington State. And, you know, with the anti-pushing on on trapping, it seems like it's going to be a moving target and an uphill battle for those until, you know, you're like us in Idaho where you start seeing your pets getting taken or, you know, you have so many that it becomes an actual problem again for cattle ranchers and get enough associations behind it to maybe make that push. Yep. So outside of trapping, you know, I envision the Phelps household as just like people talking in clicks and bugles all the time. <laughs> uh, do you speak English in your house first or is it just that? And then, you know, how did you kind of get into the engineering of like diaphragm calls? Like, I just imagine that being such a hard thing. Was it a pass down through your family and then a perfection? And then I'd like to talk a little bit about how that translated to like predator calling, which is a completely different you know, type of calling. Yeah. But. Yeah. We do, we do talk occasionally in my house with, with words. Um, no, it's, it's actually funny. My kids growing up, like with me being so involved, they bugled with their voice and I think it drove my wife nuts because all three of us would be cranking bugles, whether it was calls or, um, you know, back then I was cranking out all the diaphragms myself. So, you know, every 10th one you'd pop in your mouth to make sure you were still like, you know, QAQC. <laughs> Um, nowadays I I'm ganged up on though, like all my, both kids and my wife want me like out of the house or out of the shop. Um, you know, even in our, 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 uh, Phelps game calls shop, like even the employees like yell at me to go outside or like, Hey, that was a little bit loud or so I'm, I feel like I'm outnumbered now. Um, 
as far as, as, as running calls around, but no, my family, I grew up a bunch around a bunch of loggers. They were all like very good woodsmen, but all rifle hunters. Right. So nobody really had a need, um, you know, for, for elk calls. If any, anything we would buy, like, I, I remember like they'd have around their neck, like those little early, like Loman bite and blow cow calls just so they could maybe stop a, a cow or, or not stop a cow, but like stop elk for a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I got really, once again, my, my, the way my brain works, I, I got frustrated because I felt like as I was getting more into hunting, like, Hey, I'm putting in all this work, right? I'm out here scouting none of these. And then hunting season rolls around and all these other guys show up. And it really just depends on what time I set my alarm clock for. Like these guys get up earlier than me. They beat me to my, you know, to a landing. Like this is, I don't like not having more control over the outcome. And, and it kind of bothered me. I'm like, Hey, there's this, we've never did this archery elk hunting where there's other skills involved. There's not as many hunters in the woods. So it's more of me versus the animal. Um, I can learn a new skill on calling. So same time as the trapping was kind of taken off middle of high school. I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to call elk, you know, and go to the store, you order a big primos deluxe kit. You figure out what you like, you know, you got, uh, you know, I think that was right as the terminator, you know, the blue reed was coming on and, and that year I wasn't going to archery hunt. I was just going to go out and try to learn. I was still going to rifle hunt or muzzle. I don't remember which one I had that year, but I'm going to go out and just learn how to, to call. And the first couple of days I went out, I had multiple big bulls come in, like bigger than any bull I'd ever killed with a rifle. And I'm like, this stuff is too easy, right? And, and that, it, that was in rifle and muzzleloader season no that was that was our archery so i went out what i no bow just yeah what i advise people not to do now like don't go screw up but back then nobody was archery hunting elk around here so i really wasn't screwing anybody up i was just going out messing with the elk and i'm like wow i would have if i could shoot 30 yards i would have killed three bulls on opening weekend you know um i'm like catch and release you know elk calling and uh, i'm like man I, i really like this so i remember that christmas you know, I, I didn't know about pro shops or any of that back then. So I'm like, mom and dad, I want this bow. It's a little expensive. It's kind of over the limit we've ever did, but I want this bow that's on the front of the Cabela's magazine, you know? And so it was like a mail order bow, which nowadays I like cringe at, like, no, go shoot, you know, do, do all of this other stuff. So I got that bow, found like a local pro shop and then really got into elk hunting and uh, really wanted to like, like anything i did like hone the craft i didn't want to just be an okay elk hunter i didn't i wanted to be you know the best i wanted to be the best caller i want to be the best archery elk hunter that you know because back then nobody around here really did it um there were a few guys but you know they'd occasionally kill one i'm like no i want to have consistency i want to kill one every year i want that to be the expectation and so really just kind of dove deep over the next few years like learning how to call mimicking like you know, back then it was the Primo's Truth videos, you know, how good are the, because yeah, there wasn't much on the internet back then, like how to learn how to call. There just wasn't anything. Well, it's hard was, to do that when you have a dial up, you probably have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Then YouTube wasn't a thing. There wasn't great videos. So, all right, the best thing I've got are some old, um, you know, Wayne Carlton or Primo's Truth videos. Like, let's try to mimic, you know, the elk, the real elk that are on there, the sounds that they're making. Um, and just got what I thought was really good and, and, um, found some success really early on archery elk hunting, um, and, and really enjoyed it. And then I really enjoyed that. I felt like I had found a way that it was just more of me versus the elk and not me versus the hunters versus the elk. Like it was, it was just a one-on-one game, um, and, and found a ton of success. And then over time, 
like call consistency kind of went away. I'm like, I know that on this call over here, I sound very good. But when I go and buy these from the store, like these next five don't sound as good. Mm. Um, and about that time, you know, almost becoming bored being a bridge engineer, you know, almost becoming bored with with engineering in my day to day, but it, it did give me the skills to be able to draft. And about this time, technology was coming on board where 3D printing was a very viable option to test prototypes for cheap. And so I would say the majority of, of call manufacturers or owners were like, had the gray hair effect. They're all older gentlemen. Mm. I'm like, well, I'm the new guy. I'm 25 years old. I've got, I'm, I'm college educated, which I don't throw a whole lot at, but I, I'm very handy with a, with a mouse and a, in a computer like i can design a part very quickly were you um, a cat or a SolidWorks guy i was a back then i did what whatever i had to so like civil 3d there were a few freeware programs um i i use SolidWorks now on some more on like analysis like vibration analysis stuff but um back then it was literally just like get the part the way i think i need it um and then aside from that there was a lot of what i would call like frankenstein call building where i'd be super gluing stuff taping stuff building up parts like shaving it back down like filing it back down to try to and then like then i'd have this finished part like this thing works pretty good now i don't know how to recreate it so you'd you know sit there with your micrometer try to like reverse engineer it back um and just really kind of went down that road of what as, a, as an elk hunter what do i want to use what do i need to use like what's the quality that i would demand and and really just kind of design calls that i wanted to use and then it translates very very well to other hunters like well if it's good enough for me it's going to be you know and um so yeah we started messing around in 2009 i would say it took a while to get some traction so it was five or six years before things really started to to to, to work and then um you know some other patents were up that kind of had blocked some ideas i had and um, you know, that led to some new diaphragm designs. It led to some new bugle tube designs and then, uh, you know, really kind of hung our hat on the elk side and then moving forward, um, to, to become a full call, call company. You know, we went Turkey predator, um, deer, and we're still kind of establishing lines, you know, like waterfowl and, and additional lines. So how does that R and D work? So like, your past like being in the woods elk hunting all the time like you know what you want in a call so you can go and play in the workshop do all of that and that's led to success so what does the r d look like let's let's take the actual predator calls for an example and the reason i'll do that is a lot of our trappers you know might be doing coyote calling or want to do like a rabbit in distress call or wolf howling whatever the case may be are you bringing in experts who are in the field 320 days out of the year in wolf coyote or whatever other predator calls you're building to kind of be you in that scenario to be that feedback loop? It, it just depends. So, um, I, we, we did a lot of coyote hunting growing up behind just the old Johnny Stewart, you know, tape. You'd have to go out there every 30 minutes and flip the tape or, you know, but that, so I, I felt comfortable like coyote bobcat calling um you know all of that now when it came to like developing our wolf howler um we reached out to the stuck in the rut guys there in idaho they were yep. as as good as i could you know they were they were buddies of ours we talked to tom and his crew all the time and like they were already using a different wolf howler like hey 
help us develop this thing. And so we, there was a lot of back and forth, like, what do you want out of it? What tones get the best responses? And so we worked with them back and forth to develop like the wolf howler. Um, back pressure was huge. So there are times where I can sit and watch YouTube videos of real wolves howl and really kind of dial in on the audio, mm. but there may be something where you might not want to sound exactly like a wolf for hunting because there you may have realized a long time ago that, hey, the long, deep, low note is going to actually list, elicit more responses than than like the, the the pitch break within the wolf call, you know, from a younger one. So you're there. There's calls that you designed to emulate exact like exact, you know, as close as you can to, to the real animal. But then there are times where we design a hunting call to be the best hunting call right you if all that those guys are needing is a response mm -hmm. then you may not want to sound the most like you know the most realistic wolf call if that makes any sense um like i've got a woodpecker call that i use for turkey hunting it it's not the most accurate woodpecker call mm -hmm. but that sound gives me more shot gobbles from a turkey so i'm going to tune it that way because that's really all i want i don't care if it sounds the most like a woodpecker call i'm not trying to call on woodpeckers you know so, so it just depends on what our goal is. Um, you know, on the elk call side, there are times where I'll tune an elk call to be a little bit more high pitched because number one, I want it to, to travel farther. I feel like sometimes a higher frequency will get a bull to respond more. So you're kind of just always, you know, what, what's the goal? What's the intention? Now, if it's not a locator call and I want to sound like the, you know, the, a more mature, rich toned cow, then we may, you know, so it, yeah, but as far as experts, at times we'll bring them in and then um at times i'm confident enough in what we're doing to just go ahead and um design des you know design the call on my own um it, it, you know depending on what our pre-designed checklist is like a lot of times my my goal is just make a call that sounds good but it's very easy to run so mm -hmm. i'm playing with like volume of the barrel volume you know the exhaust back pressure um I think we're to a point where, yeah, there's a lot of good sounding calls, even from, from some of my competitors. A lot of my design criteria is to go in and make that call sound just as good as it can, but be very, very easy to use as well. So it, it just really depends on what your goal is, as you said, at, you know, set out on a, on a specific design. Yeah. That follow on question there. So this comes from my wife's actually a professionally trained musician. I have absolutely zero musical ability and consider myself tone deaf. So as I've gotten into using diaphragm calls for both elk, you know, doing it for wolf, I have a hard time with the pitch. Are you trained at all in music or is that just come naturally through this? So no, my, my music career ended in like eighth grade trumpet playing, right? <laughs> I, you had to do it fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Hey, at least um, the trumpet kind of fits your motif a little bit. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, and, and I would say, but I was always, even then, like eighth grade trumpet player, I want to be the best trumpet player, right? I want to get that solo at the Christmas concert, <laughs> you know, like, and, and so I, I don't have like an audio engineering background i do work with quite a few audio engineers um solidworks for those who don't know is like it's it's just a suite of engineering you can get vibration analysis you know plugins you can get resonant frequency plugins you can do whatever you this is such a uh complicated program and sometimes i'm not even trained in the modules on how to run it so i've got to hire an expert but what i do is i analyze a lot of audio just in um you know equalizer like 
taking real elk bugles that we've recorded um you know even at meat eater we've got one of those big like they look like satellite dish audio you know like we've went out and recorded a bunch of elk or and so i go and analyze that audio like what frequency to nat to like naturally match elk are we trying to hit hmm. and then when you go to test uh, an aluminum bugle tube versus a plastic bugle tube does one of those lend itself with the same diaphragm to get you closer to that um what the solid work say a metal bugle tube is going to get you compared to a plastic and so while i'm not necessarily an audio engineer um we do a lot of volume readings like I want my elk calls to be loud, especially in big Canyon country. Like we want them to be like very accurate from a resonant frequency, um, you know, both tube and diaphragm and the combination thereof. Um, so yeah, we, we do we, from an engineering side, I say, I look at that sort of stuff, but not from a like trained, uh, no, no formal training on that. Gotcha. So I'm not going to hire you for any wedding singing, but no, no, no. <laughs> Hearing that though, I think I'm going to get a petition together from listeners to get the Phelps foothold trap because I think the uh, the amount of focus and detail that might go into that might help change the trapping industry. So I'm going to push for that. All right. All right. Perfect. Um, you know, I know we're running up on time here, so I really have two questions left for you. I like to do these kind of at the end. So first question I ask every guest is you spent insane amount of time out in the woods what is the weirdest thing you've ever come across whether on a trap line as a teenager you know hunting through your adult years what's the oddest thing you've ever come across oddest thing um man i i i i'm gonna start my answer with like other stories like i feel like everybody's had cooler stuff happen to them in the woods like you know, random things they've ran into or found out in the woods or people interactions. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like mine has just been super boring and like almost like ran the script. I, I'm trying to like think as I'm talking here and I just, I've haven't had like, Oh, I'll give you one. Okay. I, the weirdest thing. And, and, um, I'm going to preface this, which like, I'm not claiming whether you need to believe in or not like aliens, right. Or mm -hmm. like different stuff like that. But two three years ago i go to new mexico very close to roswell like i don't believe in this stuff at all like it doesn't i don't i think it whatever so i'm scouting prior to to steve and the camera crew showing up and one night i'm i, I i'm hiking in three or four miles scout and then i come back out to my truck three to four miles and i'm i'm pushing it fairly close but it's just like at the very end of daylight Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've got to go up and down. I'm trying to get around a fence line on some public private boundaries. And I'm, I'm getting close to my truck. Well, you know, as you're walking along, you're kind of just staring at your feet and where your steps are going. I see a big flash, like as you're looking down, almost like lightning had struck, like there was a big flash of light. Well, and then I start to hear a sound that, um, you know, those little ground flower fireworks that buzz around, make these little triangles like, bzzz, and yep. then I'm like, it sounded like that. And I look above. And they're like three orange lights, kind of maybe, I don't know, thousand feet up, making that sort of sound. And as I'm watching it, it the lights turn from orange to green. Hmm. I'm like, what the heck? And I'm like, well, maybe it's like a drone. I don't know why there's a drone above me, but, or who's running this drone, but it didn't have the same sound as a drone. Well, then it started to get like lower and I'm like, what in the heck? And then it flashes that same bright flash, like almost blinding at that time of night. Like what in the heck is going on like starting to get a little worried and i'm like all right i'm just gonna walk faster and not really look at this thing well it starts to like follow me 
like straight above, like either it, uh, whoever's got this drone has now recognized that I'm below it. And uh, it flashes like three or four more times and it just kind of, and then I look up and it's changing from orange and green. I try to take a picture with my phone and it's un, I cannot take a picture of this thing that is very, really? that is very, very evident with my eyeballs, but my phone cannot capture it. Like I'm trying to sit there and play with the brightness and lowness. Like, no, it's just un. I was unable. So then I'm like trying to take a selfie with it. Like maybe it's the camera. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it, it's just a coincidence that we were down in that section in New Mexico. But, um, that was the weirdest thing. And still this day, I still don't believe in that stuff, but something was off that day. Either somebody had a drone that was like government type level, like it was, you couldn't take a picture of it, but something was a little off and I don't know what it was, but it freaked me out a little bit that night and, um, still bothers me to this day that like, I don't know what it was. Yeah, that that seems to be a common thread with people I ask. Like, I don't believe in aliens, but if I did, here's this experience I had, and I, yeah. I've had some similar ones. That's a good one. Yeah, it's either aliens or government messing with me that night. Hey, you know they want to get in the action on the, <laughs> the they want to extract it from your brain on yeah. how you do it. All right, last hypothetical: Would you rather fight ten pine marten-sized mountain lions or one mountain lion-sized pine marten, and why? I'm going with the smaller size. Um, okay. I feel like I can kick him and beat him off faster than than the one larger animal might still get me. Okay. So I think I'm going to fight the 10 Pine Martin-sized cougars. Yeah, yeah. That would I be think. a tough one. I, I mean, it's going to be a tough fight either way, but I think this. I, I'm going to go for like my big my big frame, being able to handle the the smaller critter, um, hopefully before they like gang up on me. But then you like, you watch Jurassic Park, not saying that this applies to real life at all, but like those little teeny dinosaurs that, you know, you get a whole bunch of those, like they end up, uh, my wife's way better at Jurassic park than me, but like, I only just catch pieces. I'm walking through the house, but whatever them little teeny things were like messed with that one super dinosaur they made and really kind of screwed it up. So. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good choice, but Jason, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking, trapping with me in the past, but I know you guys have a lot of things going on. I know a lot of our, community would be interested in some of the, the howlers and other calls anything you want to plug or tell where people can go and check out a little bit more on some of the things you've got going on and where they can find your eventual foothold traps <laughs> so everything we do is um kind of it's all over social so you know instagram it we're at phelps game calls or my personal ones at jason glenn phelps i wasn't really planning on doing a personal one but um Everybody thought it'd be a good idea so I could share a little bit more of my personal stuff, not so much business oriented. Um, we're on Facebook. Um, you know, our website's phelpsgamecalls.com. And we just, we try to be at as many of the shows still in person, you know, as things grow, sometimes it's easy to just like stop going to the shows, but we're usually myself or Dirk or, you know, all the shows that we put on, we try to make ourselves accessible, um, open to answer questions and just uh, want to be good want to be good stewards of, of hunting and trapping and, and the industry and, and hopefully um, be, be a, you know, a, a knowledge base for, for people that may have questions or, or don't know. And um, yeah, we, we've really enjoyed, enjoyed our time and, and enjoy the position that we're in. Yeah. And I, I can be a straight Testament to that. You and I actually met for the first time at Western Hunt Expo last year and you dealt with me coming up and introducing myself and you were nice enough to stay in contact over the last year or so. Um, the words ring true and I appreciate it. And for those listening, you know, reach out if you have questions. Cool. All right, everybody. 
Thank you so much, Jason. And uh, we'll catch you next time on the next episode of OKS Trapper Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach.